0: In meinem Podcast bekommst du sehr persönliche Geschichten von Mehrsprachigkeit aus der ganzen Welt zu hören. Lehn dich zurück und lass dich inspirieren. Welcome to today's episode of Multilingual Stories. Today's guest was supposed to be on the podcast over two years ago. That is how long it took us to finally get together. And I'm super excited to get to know her together with you today on my show. Um, hello and welcome, Miriam Otimu. See, I knew I was going to struggle with the name. It's a mouthful.
1: <laughs> <There we go. laughs> thank you, Bettina. You pronounced it perfectly. So I, I applaud you for your Italian pronunciation. Thank you so much for having me too. As you mentioned, it's it's crazy. We've been trying to connect for so long and I'm very, very happy to finally have the chance to talk to you today as well. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming here. And I'm
0: super excited to hear your story because I have a feeling that's going to be a little different from most other stories.
1: Sure. Where where should I start? (laughs) Well, where were you born? Where where did you grow up? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, So I was born in Pakistan, in Karachi. Um, And um, funnily enough, my parents are Pakistani. But they weren't living there at the time they were already expatriated um and so back then in the 80s my parents were the ones who were living abroad and they were living in a tiny kingdom of bahrain in the middle east uh, a lot of oil and um they were actually living there but then they thought that if i was born there you know bahrain like most middle eastern gulf countries does not grant you citizenship if a child is born in their country. And back then, uh, Pakistan was quite, uh, it was very complicated to get Pakistani citizenship if you weren't born there. So my mom decided to go back home uh, to give birth to me. And so I was born in Pakistan. And then um, when I was about, I think, three weeks or four weeks old, um, we all traveled back to Bahrain, which was our home. So initially, I grew up there in the Middle East. Uh, That's where I said my first words, took my first steps. Um, But as it is usually with a globally mobile childhood, um, by the age of uh, two, my dad, who was a banker at the time, he received uh, another offer to go work in the U.S. So at the age of two, we moved to New York City and then I grew up there. (laughs) And that's actually when I think my bilingual journey truly began, Mm -hmm. because um, we would speak Urdu, our national language at home. And we would speak English outside the home with, you know, friends, neighbors, teachers, doctors, et cetera. So New York is really where I learned how to be a bilingual child. And uh, it, it was quite an interesting experience, uh, which I didn't you know, think about until many, many years later um, as an adult. But um, that's the, that was my life. And then um, we lived there until the end of the 80s. And then my parents, after almost a decade, more than a decade of living abroad, decided they wanted to return back to Pakistan and raise me and my sister over there, so we could be more in touch with our roots, with the language, the culture, etc. And um, and that's what we did. So we repatriated back. How old were you then? <laughs> I was about uh, six, almost seven. And I was there just in time to start school. Um, and because I'd been raised bilingually, I could understand what people were saying in Urdu. I myself was speaking Urdu with an American accent, which sometimes the kids made fun of because they it sounded very weird to them. Um, and it's quite normal, as you know, that sometimes you do speak your own mother tongue with a bit of an accent. And it took me many, many years to get rid of that accent. Really? Um, but I did manage to do it because we lived in Pakistan, and then I lived there till I was 18. So I spent predominantly my, you know, identity forming teenage years of there. And um, it was actually very interesting initially, like my parents had taught me to speak and to understand Urdu, but I couldn't write or read it. And so that's where the schooling helped. But Pakistan, like India and many other places, you know, we were under, um, yeah, we were under the British empire under colonialism for over 200, 300 years. So the academic system is all mostly English, especially for the privileged set, you know, class of society or the elite. And so we would all attend English schools and then learn our own language as a foreign language. So that was kind of interesting, Um, an interesting experience to go through, Um, which is why when I tell you today, I'm fluent in Urdu, like I can, you know, talk to anybody fluently in Urdu. But Bettina, if you ask me a question and say, Maria, please explain the solar system in Urdu, or let's talk about World War One in Urdu, I would probably really struggle because my academic language is always English. And I don't know, like maybe many other perhaps bilingual people would relate that being a bilingual is such a natural thing for you. Like you don't know anything different. <laughs> you don't know anything else. That's your norm, right? So for you, it's very, um, easy to just take it, you know, for granted and say that, well, if I don't know something in one language, I'll use the words in the other. And so we do code switch um, a lot. But that's really my a little, little bit about where I grew up and also the languages I started learning at a young age.
0: How did you manage to retain an American accent when you were schooled in,
1: I assume, British English? I did. Um, It's, it's, it's funny. Well, I I ended up going back to the US, but that was much later. Um, I went there for college, uh, university, and then spend a good number of more years, you know, studying there and, and working there. I it's like it's it's funny because, you know, I had a lot of my very uh, precious moments in the U.S. Like I got my first driver's license in the U.S. I got my first car in the U.S., got my first laptop in the U.S. So a lot of these, um, you know, milestones took place over there. Um but you're right, I actually went to a British school in Pakistan, and as a result, my spelling had to switch back and forth, yeah. even not just my accent, but also the spelling, um, between, uh, you know, UK spelling and US spelling. And when I was writing my book, my editor was like, Mariam, please just choose one and stick to it. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> so driving her crazy, because C-O-L-O-R seems no. the same to me as C-O-L-O-U-R. And I would use one in one go, and then use the other in the yeah, I no. completely get that. I completely get that.
0: <laughs> what happens if you talk to a British uh person? What happens
1: I, to your accent? I, I, I don't have a British accent. Um yeah. I think I have a quite a neutral It's hard to analyze your own accent, but I feel like, you know, like many multiculturals and many multilinguals, we adapt to how we sound based to who we're based on who we're talking to. It's absolutely. Um and so even if I'm speaking English, I would speak it differently in Pakistan, I'd speak it differently in the U.S. Sometimes I slow myself down because especially like in Portugal, I have to make sure if I am speaking English with someone, especially if it's someone who's, you know, English is not their native language. I do slow myself down to enunciate a bit more and to pronounce things, uh, pronounce things clearly. So, so it really depends like um, who you're talking to as well. Um but yeah, I think I think that's probably quite common in many multilinguals.
0: Yes, absolutely. And you know what's fascinating is that we can already see that in young children. Mm-hmm. So young children who grow up um, multilingually, they adapt to who they're speaking to. So not all, you know, they can choose the language that the other person understands. And apparently, it's the case that this carries over. To other domains as well. So they have a higher social understanding. They're sometimes more empathetic because they need to put themselves into other people's shoes um, at a very different level at at a very young age where other children, you know, they don't necessarily need to do that yet.
1: Yeah, I think it's such a key, you, exactly what you said, that that perspective taking, putting yourself in someone else's shoes and then trying to relate to that. It's such a key thing. And, um, you know, it's one of the reasons why we're raising our own kids multilingually now, because As as a kid, you take it for granted, but it's only as an adult where you can appreciate the true benefits of growing up this way, Um, and really trying to you know understand that this is a huge advantage. You know, as you know, I move around a lot, but I really feel like the languages I learn it's the one gift that nobody can ever take away from me because you know that will always stay with you. Um, And nobody can ever you can move your location, you can change your job, you can live somewhere else, but if you learn to speak a language. You always maintain that connection to that place, yes. to that time, to yourself. And so I think it's it's truly one of the best gifts you can give to yourself.
0: <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful.
1: And you know, because you said earlier,
0: you said, well, only as adults we can truly appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And while, you know, I think to a certain extent, you're certainly right. But what really strikes me is that. In families where a language is not passed on to the children, children start complaining at a relatively young age. Usually between 11 and 13 years, they start complaining to their parents, like, why did you not pass on that language to us? So, you know, that comes much sooner than I expected or I Mm -hmm. used to expect. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought, well, you know, when they're grownups, then that's when they realize what they're missing. Mm -hmm. But it's at a much younger age, like, you know, teenagers, pre teenagers already have the sense
1: of, this would have been so easy for me. Why did you not? (laughs) Why did you not pass this on to me? I think that's a very legitimate question. And, you know, Bettina, language is about words and about communication. But in the end, I think we can agree that language is so much more than that. It's yes. about who you are. It's about your identity. Yes. And I know because we have struggled as a parent, you know, with, um, with so many, you know, questions about what language to pass on. How do we do this? What framework should we choose? And language is, is, you know, it brings up so many emotions in yourself because it is an emotional thing. You're talking about your own identity. And that is something that is usually very important to many people. Sometimes they struggle to express it, but it's actually much bigger than that. So yes. it's,
0: it's a very important topic. Yeah, that that's also what I love about my work, you know, um, and that's the part that's sometimes really hard to get across to people. Because some people they come to me and they think well they're gonna get tips and tools and scientific facts and yes they get all that from me right you know I'm a linguist yes they get the facts Um, I know how to do it so yes they get the tips and the tools Um, but it's always so much more Mm -hmm. and we usually need tissues because people start crying at a certain point because it gets so emotional Mm -hmm. Um, and you know like one mom said to me you know, Bettina, I found a part of myself that I didn't even know I had been missing. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. You, know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's Yeah.
0: You know, that's what makes it all worthwhile, right? Absolutely. Um, so you've already mentioned that you have kids. You have three kids, right? <laughs> um, and you dropped Portugal somewhere. So I think <laughs> there are some bits we're miss- missing, right? Let now. me bring you up to speed. Did you know that I also offer one-on-one consultations and packages in English? If you are currently facing challenges in your multilingual family life, or if you simply don't know how to best include all your languages, just send me an email and tell me about your struggles. I promise you, you can overcome whatever hurdles you are facing. Just drop me a line and I will personally get back to you. I look forward to hearing from you.
1: That's correct. I am sitting here talking to you in my home in Portugal. I live in Cascais, so just by the sea, so a seaside town, about 20 minutes outside of Lisbon. So that's where I am <laughs> today. But as I mentioned, I've lived a globally mobile life. Uh, my husband and I we call ourselves serial expats because we move around a few, every few years. Um, so after I, I went back to the US, I was studying there and decided to do a year abroad in, in England because I was studying, I was getting a degree in economics, but I wanted to study the European economic model a bit more. And the US didn't offer so many detailed courses on the EU, whereas universities and, you know, other European countries did so off I went to the UK and that's where I met my half German half Italian husband (laughs) (laughs) yes where else right and uh and he funnily enough Bettina he introduced himself as an Italian he said hi my name is Martino and I'm Italian and of course with a name like that I just believed him and it was only later I heard him speaking on the phone with his mom and I said what language were you speaking? Because that didn't sound like Italian. (laughs) And he said, oh no, that was German. And I said, oh, okay. And then he said, actually, my mom is German. And I said, Oh, okay. Okay. So your mom is German and your dad is Italian. Okay. But where were you born? Germany. Where were you raised? Germany. (laughs) Where have you lived all your life? Germany. Oh, wow. And so, you know, I, it was a while till I could grasp the cross cultural background of growing up between two languages and two cultures that he had experienced. And you know, his parents were very um also big proponents of, of raising a bilingual kid. So my Italian father-in-law only spoke Italian with him. And my German mother-in-law, of course, spoke German. And then the environment spoke German and went to school there. So he grew up fully bilingual. And even today, when he meets Italians, they cannot believe that he speaks Italian, fluently, can write Italian, read in an Italian. And he's never lived even one day in Italy. <laughs> wow. They really did a great job. <laughs> they wow. They truly did. They truly did. So that sort of where our multicultural and uh, multilingual uh, family life started after we met in the UK and then we got married a few years later. And I ended up leaving the US and moving to, to Germany, to Berlin, as I was mentioning. Um, I lived in Berlin and Bettina, I think I was so used to moving around because I moved around, you know, Pakistan, US, bahrain in the UK, but I'd never moved to a country where I didn't understand the language. Mm-hmm. And I arrived in Berlin um, you know, in a big high. But I realized I liken the feeling in my writing, I liken the feeling to arriving in a country where you don't understand the language to feeling as if you've gone illiterate overnight, as if you've become illiterate, because suddenly you can't read the newspaper, you don't know what the subway station announcement is being made. And it's usually something very mundane, like, oh, this, you know, a train is delayed, please take this one instead. But if you can't understand it, you really, um, you know, it disorients you in a way that's hard to explain to somebody who may not have experienced this. So living in Berlin initially was extremely tough because I felt like I couldn't go to the bank. I couldn't go to any government office. I it couldn't even I, I relate a funny incident which is funny now in hindsight. But during the time, you know, I'm in a German grocery store in a supermarket and I've forgotten what breadcrumbs are called in German. And I'm so embarrassed and I don't have the vocabulary or the confidence to even go up to the, to the shop assistant or the cashier and ask for help. You know, and this is back before you have Google Translate on your iPhone and, and all the quick yeah. things that we, we, we do have today. But it, it's just to show you that even for somebody who's very confident, very extroverted, put them in a new language environment and it can be quite um, a challenge for most of us. And I think most of us do struggle. But the other, the, the good thing was that, you know, I, I learned German very quickly. I um, wanted to learn German because I wanted to make the effort to speak it. And so, as I was mentioning, I did an intensive course every day, nine to five, Monday to Friday. Um, and wow, was to that is intense. So. <laughs> yeah, so I, it was intense. But then the good thing is I got to practice, you know, every day in the supermarket, on the bus, uh, in the U-Bahn, wherever. And, um, and so it went pretty quickly. And um, it was amazing. Once I started learning German, it, it was as if my whole world had opened up. I could read menus <laughs> at a restaurant. I could understand what random people were saying on the street, which may not sound at all like something important, but to me it was because it gave me context yes. as to where I was. And I missed that. I missed being just able to understand what a bunch of teenagers were saying on the bus, you know. So learning German really, it was hard. (laughs) German's a hard language to learn. Um, I'll I'll point out two important things. One, for instance, like everything in German that is masculine would be feminine in my native language of Oh my God. (laughs) speaker i'll tell you for instance like in german the sun is you know a dieson the the sun is is feminine in german but in urdu my my native language the sun is masculine i have to train my mind okay it's not masculine it's feminine remember remember (laughs) (laughs) remember and the other thing i struggled with which shows you just how quick how closely language and culture are intertwined was You know, in Germany uh, or in German, you can say either do or z to somebody, right? You can address them with the informal do or the formal z. And it's the same, exactly the same in Urdu. So that I was like, oh, that's great. Wow. I didn't know that the two languages would have this in common. But I realized the rules for doing it were so different because in Pakistan, you're supposed to be respectful to someone who, let's say, is older than you. So anybody who's older than you automatically Uh, gets a Z (laughs) and anybody who's younger than you gets a Duke Mm -hmm. but I so I started saying Z to my my German mother-in-law and she said what are you doing (laughs) people will think we've got a very distant relationship and that we're not close at all and I said no but older than me so I thought I should address you you know respectfully and she said no 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 you we're related so you can say do to me and then um you know and then so the social cues of understanding and again language points to culture right and 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 so that was a very interesting process to go through in Berlin um And I'm sorry, I got stuck talking to you about Berlin. But after Berlin, I lived in Copenhagen for four years. I learned Danish. (laughs) You learned Danish? I did. I was doing Danish in the morning and German in the evening and thinking, what what, what is this? What's my life? This is crazy. Especially because the two languages are sort of kind of similar, a bit related. Um, But I learned Danish. And then... uh, Yes, Danish is, you know, again, it's a a hard language to learn, but I wanted to work in Denmark. So I thought I should learn some Danish. And so I can understand everything even till today. But of course, I don't speak it anymore. So I'm losing a lot of uh, vocabulary. But sometimes follow Danish people in, in countries like Portugal and in Italy and shock them by, you know, saying something or understanding what they're saying and responding. Um, but yeah, Denmark was uh, was a great experience. Um, we lived for four years in Copenhagen and then we moved to Singapore and lived there for just about three years. And I should mention my husband works in international shipping. Hence, every few years we get posted to a big city with a big port. Um, and our first daughter was born in Singapore and uh, she started going to play school in Mandarin and English. So that was interesting. And then um So I was pregnant when we moved from Denmark to Singapore and then a few years later (laughs) I was pregnant again in Singapore. But of course, as per my tradition, we ended up moving. So we moved from Singapore to Dubai and I gave birth to my second uh, child, my son, in Dubai. And then my kids were going to a multilingual preschool speaking English, Arabic and French. And after that we moved to Ghana to uh, West Africa. So we were living there for sadly just two years. Our time there cut short due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. My kids were then learning English and French in school and we were trying to learn, uh, the local language called we. (laughs) Um, so, um, just a, at least a few basic phrases to be able to go to the market and ask for avocados, you know. Um, and after Ghana, we, uh, as I mentioned, I was pregnant again with my third child and we ended up moving to Portugal in uh, 2020 in the middle of pandemic. Which is where you still are. And this is a really
0: good time to mention that your Instagram account
1: is called And Then We Moved To, which I love. <laughs> It all makes sense, right? Because those are the words I right hear coming out of my mouth the most. Oh, and then we moved here, and then we moved there, and then
0: we yeah. were there. So, yes. <laughs> By the way, f- funny personal, you know, snippet of my life. Um, <laughs> before um, I got pregnant with my first kid. Mm-hmm. My husband and I, my then not husband, my now husband and I, we said, "Well, we want to go on some exciting trip that we wouldn't do while I'm pregnant." Mm-hmm. Um, so, like one last, you know, we were just we just wanted to go somewhere, and we ended up going to Ghana. Oh, how yeah.
1: lovely! I, I so, that's amazing.
0: Yeah. So uh, and, you know, I had to get the yellow fever shot to be able to yes, go there yes. and, you know, you, you don't get pregnant while you get this. So, you know, we postponed that for after the trip. And you know this was this was our last before kids uh, trip that. Oh, I love that. You know, I, I, I,
1: yeah. It's so cool that you mentioned that. Bettina. I don't meet a lot of people who know even where Ghana is. So I sometimes have to qualify my my statement, saying you know, Accra, Ghana. It's in West Africa, in this corner. You know, but when I meet people who know where Ghana is, it's like, oh my God, you're speaking my language now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ghana yeah. was such a such a beautiful
0: place and yeah Um, yeah i recently put up some pictures on our wall in the living room that i took you know i I love taking pictures so Mm -hmm. i have a ton but they don't actually get showcased (laughs) anywhere because they're on my computer primarily so i had some printed and when we were selecting it it was all from um, travels that we took together and when we were selecting them my husband said well you know maybe we shouldn't make it just pictures of from ghana (laughs) There were, you know, there were so many pictures because the landscape is amazing and the it's like the beach is so dramatic. I have yeah. some dramatic beach pictures. So we have oh, a few goodness. Ghana pictures in our living room now. Oh, that
1: makes me super happy, to You <laughs> must po- you must post a photo of your Ghana photos. I would love to see that. I will. I will promise. <laughs> All right um so um
0: taking stock now you're basically well you're a multilingual couple but when what it boils down to is four languages right so that's Urdu that's English that's German and that's Italian well actually it will always be at least five languages because there will always be another country that you'll be living in but within the family there's four languages so you have three kids do you speak a different language with every kid to get them all on the one <laughs> oh room? Oh gosh! Yes, no, that would be quite a quite a feat. How do it? you do that? How do you
1: navigate um, your languages at home? This has been one of, I think, the toughest things to figure out. Uh, how do we do this? Um, and um, it's also part of the reason I, I did end up writing about it because I thought if I'm facing this, surely other people and other families might be facing, you know, the same questions or the same struggles. The hardest part, Bettina, for us was that as bilingual uh, parents ourselves, it was hard to choose just one language to pass on to our kids. And I realized this is a very normal process that bilingual parents go through when they're raising their own children. And that's the process of letting go, perhaps, or deciding to let go. Maybe if they speak three languages, maybe they realize they can't speak all three with their child. So There's a bit of grief and loss involved in this process, which I hadn't really expected. So I really struggled. The first thing I, the first thing we struggled with was what language should we speak to our kids? I had the choice between Urdu or English, and I decided to go for Urdu because I thought, well, English, they can learn anywhere. Or in school, you know, they'll learn it in school. It's an yeah. easy language to have access. Yeah. to. And Urdu, of course, is much more difficult to learn if you don't grow up speaking it inside your home. So I made the choice of speaking Urdu. I have to admit that I, I did struggle with it back and forth. Um, and I'll explain perhaps those reasons why, because they may resonate with other people. Um, but I did decide on Urdu, and my husband, uh, who's half German, half Italian, had a choice between German or Italian, and he decided to speak German. Um, and the reason for that was well, A, it's literally his mother tongue. Um, B, his parents, they they still lived in Germany. So each time we took the kids to see their grandparents, you know, the environment was speaking German with them and all the you know, neighbors and friends, and we thought it would be nice if they can understand understand you know what everyone's saying and then speak uh, to them so he decided to speak German but also faced a bit of loss not being able to speak Italian every day Um, but then what we did that's how we started so we started off with the one person um, a one language model roughly where he's speaking German I'm speaking Urdu two of us started uh, since we met in the UK we started speaking off uh, together in English but then we would mix you know German and Urdu in um, when we were you know sitting together as a family um so that was originally the dynamics and as i mentioned in school my daughter was doing mandarin and english in fact more mandarin less english and so she's learning all these chinese songs and and really amazing pronunciation better than i could have managed uh, in mandarin myself um and and then when we moved to dubai we, we that's when we realized okay we have to have that consistency where our home languages should always remain the same, no matter what's happening in school um, and we decided English would always be their main academic language at school plus whatever the community language is whether it's Arabic whether it's French whether it's you know Portuguese whether it's anything else and that at home we tried to stay as consistent as possible in speaking German and Urdu but Bettina you know, as you know kids you know they always they, they they pick up things very quickly and so when our daughter was I think she was three years old she realized. Wait a second, Mama, you can speak English. Papa, you can speak English too. So why should I speak German with you and Urdu with you? Because kids will choose the path of least resistance, and and that is very normal. It's very normal that they that they go through this process. And I think um, that's can I
0: right. interrupt you here? Because yes. that, that's <laughs> an important point for me. Um, I don't think it's the path of least resistance. I don't. I don't think that's that's the right way to view it. Um your children will have become much more comfortable with English because they were surrounded with English much more mm-hmm. than they were surrounded by Urdu and German. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um let me use let me use an example that I think will hit home right away. Before yeah. we started this podcast, you said, uh, shall we do it in German or shall we do it in English? Do I have to do it in German? And you know, and we did speak German for a little while um, before we actually started the recording. And your German is excellent. And as you said, you know, you 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 can do small talk, and you can you can easily you know survive in the streets of Germany. Um, but um, it was clear that we were going to talk about slightly more complex issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it, you know, so um, it is. Easier for you or faster mm. for you mm-hmm. to speak in the language that you are more comfortable in, that you know is your your stronger language. And that's the same with kids. Mm. So I don't think that you consciously chose the path of least resistance. And no, I don't think no, that that's children right are any different from grown-ups in that respect, you know. Yeah, we choose the language that we're most comfortable with. Yeah, um, of course. Unless there is no other way. Yeah.
1: yeah, what I mean by that is that it's easy. Of course, it was easier for them to speak in English, and once they could see that we're, you know, speaking English at their nursery, you know, with their teachers picking them up, that's when you know she said, "Well, mm-hmm. if you can speak English, why aren't you speaking it, or why should I speak, you know, X Y Z with you?" What I mean to say, though, is that. You know, unless you create a need for your child to speak that language, they it's it's a, it's really going to be an uphill battle, right? Um, and so that's what we really needed to do. We needed to create a need for our child to speak to us in our, our mother, lang- uh, mother tongues or our, our native languages. And so it was it was a very it's a very tricky process. And, and you know, each family decides how they want to go about it. Um, how much emphasis? You know, what are your goals? Do You just want your child to have you know. Be able to understand you, active listening or passive listening, or do you want your child to actually be able to construct a sentence that is grammatically uh, correct? So, you know, we had different goals, Bettina, like for Urdu, I, I emphasized speaking and understanding. I didn't emphasize um, writing as much because I thought, you know, they won't need—they're not going to be able to—they're you know, not going to need to write to anybody in Urdu. Um, but my husband did. He wanted to make sure that they did, you know, were able to uh, read and write in German because that's the the way we use the languages or the way the languages are used are so different. And for me, the biggest the biggest challenge I faced was that I was constantly <clears throat> I was constantly comparing our languages and. And constantly in awe of the german-speaking world as to how much emphasis they gave to their own language how much pride they took in speaking their own language each time we go back to germany um, people would be thrilled that Martino, my husband, was speaking German with our kids. They said, Yeah, of course, you must Deutsch sprechen, das ist sehr, sehr wichtig. And they would really applaud him and and back him up and say, you know, let's give your let's give your kids, you know, books in German, let's can, you know, they can watch this in German, do all the things, you know, let's open up their world. And um, Bettina, on the other hand, when I would go back to Pakistan and, and share that I'm speaking Urdu with my kids, the reaction would be why are you bothering? Um, Why is why are you making such a big deal about it? What's the problem? Why can't why can't you speak in English? And the thing is that, um, you know, a, uh, we don't take as much in our own language, we take it for granted. And because I was married to someone from a different country, different culture, and living abroad, I had the realization that I couldn't take my own language for granted anymore. I had to do something about it. If it was important to me, I had to take a stance and and try to pass it on to my kids. Um, But I faced a lot of, ironically, a lot of lack of understanding from people um, who were, you know, uh, speakers of the same language, and then there's also there's also, you know, socioeconomic reasons. There's also historical reasons. You know, Germany was never colonized by uh, by the British Empire. Germany remained its, you know, it retained its uh, its its pride in its language. Whereas India, Pakistan, countries in South Asia, and even in Africa, you know, um, English became one of their official languages. In fact, English is still one of the official languages mm-hmm. of Urdu is the national language, but English is one of the two official languages. And people, um, they internalize both so much that code switching became the norm. And so that's how we speak. We might start telling a story in Urdu. We might (coughs) scold our kids in English. And then we might give the punchline of the joke in Punjabi. You know, um, (coughs) code switching is our norm where we don't really... Um, stick to expressing ourselves in one particular language, but we pick and choose and borrow words and insert them um, into our sentence. And I realized that doing strict O-P-O-O-L, one person, one language, was making me a bit of a miserable parent, because somehow I felt I was, you know, cutting off half of myself or denying part of who I was. And I thought, am I, you know, yes, language is about communication, but If nobody in Pakistan actually speaks this way, what am I actually passing on to my kids? Some antiquated version of what I think a pure language model should be. How helpful is that going to be for me or my children? So I slowly started to adjust. I, I was so concerned with being as consistent as possible. But in the end, I realized as my parenting journey went on and now just like you, I've been a parent for a decade. My oldest is 10 that, you know, I had to sort of introduce the code switching part of our language um, identity into, you know, our day to day life. And so I started to do that and <clears throat> it feels a bit more natural where I will say things still in Urdu, but if there's an English word like weekend or, you know, computer <laughs> or whatever it is, I'll insert that in and just, you know, make sure that my kids understand that's okay to do and that's actually you know what multilinguals do this is very common and many people around the world do that yes, Absolutely, so it's such a it's been such an interesting experience of trying to uh, figure out what's right for yeah. family
0: yeah so and italian did the kids don't know any italian or uh, did you manage to mix it in as well
1: we did. Uh, their Italian uh, grandfather uh, would speak in Italian with the kids, but because we didn't live, you know, near him and they wouldn't see him every day, had, had we been living near him and perhaps if they could hear him every day or talk to him every day, it would have, you know, made a difference. Um they they have a passive knowledge of italian my husband decided to uh continue speaking in german but he would sing all the songs in italian that he grew up with so all the lullabies all the songs and so in the car when we sing (laughs) or when he sings it's always in italian so the kids you know they they picked it up very fast and they um can understand a lot of it they they have a lot of passive knowledge of italian um they're not very active speakers but that's okay we thought okay we are will prioritize German, Urdu and English for the time being and give them some passive knowledge and understanding of Italian with oh. the hope that they can always choose to study it further, you know, or perhaps take it up in university or go live in Italy. Um, and we decided to take them to Italy as often as possible. So we've already been twice this year. Um, awesome. And then, of course, they, they learn all the important words like chocolatini. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know. you know the playground and ice cream everything so so we do we did feel that loss a little bit and we were trying to figure out how can we make sure that Italian continues to be part of our family culture
0: beautiful you could also start reading books with them that's yes. also always a good way to include a language that you don't actively speak and you could still yes. you know you can still you can still choose to one day a week you know speak Italian Italian or I don't know have sunday breakfast in italian that's always an option um yeah. you know the the this idea that it has to be super strict and super consistent um i mean you figured that out yourself on the way uh, <laughs> Through but, trial and error I
1: guess. yeah
0: sure um you know that idea is it has there's good reasons for this for the idea Um, but it just does, it's not every day. It's not what suits many, many families in this world, especially those. And it's absolutely possible as one person to pass on two languages.
1: Um,
0: yes, you have to prioritize, or you should probably prioritize one of the languages. It's Mm. probably going to be the one that's your dominant language anyways, but it's not like Opal is not set in stone at all.
1: And I think that's the thing, like, um, it was it was liberating to to free ourselves from thinking. Okay, this is the only way. This is the only you know you have to stay consistent. I mean, of course, we knew that there are, you know different models, time and place, or you know different minority at home and majority outside. There are so many different ways to do it to do to raise bilingual or multilingual kids, and I think each family really does have to figure out for themselves what works. As I mentioned, we started off with a very strict uh, one person one language, and it was making me a miserable parent and not really close to reality either. And now we've relaxed a little bit in the sense that we are a bit more reflective of our own multilingual personalities and makes us much better parents, uh, much happier parents to be able to read. So I do read books in both English and in Urdu with my kids. Um, For the longest time, I was like, should I, should I not? I'm like, well, well, of course I should, you know? And so modeling multilingualism is also part of raising multilingual kids, I feel. Beautiful. Speaking
0: of books, you wrote a book. I did. tell us about your
1: book. Yes, yeah, so sure I um, you know I thought as I was mentioning I can't be the only one who's struggling with what language do I speak and how do we blend cultures because nobody ever teaches you about blending cultures in a cross-cultural marriage or relationship. And and then if you add expat life on top of it, um, I felt that the books that were out there always dealt with these subjects uh, separately. Either there were books on how to raise a bilingual child or there were books on, well, you've moved abroad, how to move abroad, how to deal with transition, how to raise a family abroad. Or there were books on how to be in a cross-cultural marriage or relationship and all the, you know, intercultural advice. And many families like yours and mine, we have, we are an amalgamation or a fusion of all of these different mm-hmm. elements, right? Mm-hmm. This is what 2022 looks like. This, this is what families look like, especially in our globalized world. And I wanted to have um, one place or write one book that dealt with all of these messy threads of our global identity in one place. And mm-hmm. so I decided to write this book It's called all this messy mobile life, yes. um, um, because I wanted to be very honest, Bettina, and say, you know, I'm not telling you how to live a perfect life. I'm, you know, there is nothing, that doesn't even exist, right? I mean, this is a peek into my own very messy life. You know, the failures, the challenges, the opportunities, the learnings, <laughs> and then um, as as an economist, my background was um, in in research, and so I, I did a lot of research for this book as well. I researched a lot of families, spoke to them. And try to get their stories as well of, um, you know, living this this messy mobile life on the move, where you are a mix of cultures, languages, um, different identities, different sense of home, different sense of belonging. How do you express that in one family? How do you um, have those conversations at your uh, dinner table? And so it's a, it's a guidebook for anybody who lives a multicultural, multilingual or mobile life or all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is to start thinking about these things when you have a calm moment, because usually um, we find that we're always placed in these you know, stressful or challenging situations. And then, you know, one person may want to get on the plane and the other doesn't. And and that's not the time to have the conversation. The time to have a conversation about your values and what's important to you is, you know, a calm period where you can actually think about it. So so the book is designed to help each family think about uh, who they are. Um, And I I present a a metaphor of a MOLA. I don't know if you know what that is but it's, um, I was looking for a way to express the complexity of families like yours and mine and so many others around the world. And a mola is a shirt that is made in South America by the Gouda tribe, uh, mostly in Panama and Colombia today. And what they do Bettina is super fascinating. They, they stitch, You know, they take many different layers of, of brightly colored cloth and they start stitching and layering them one on top of the other and each layer tells a different story. Mm-hmm. And some layers are hidden and some shine through. Um, and then they they cut and they fold it. And then, then when they turn it around, um, it bears a very distinct pattern of who they are or who their story uh, or what their story is or what their heritage is. So it's a very individual piece uh, that they wear. And I thought that was super powerful to where who they actually are, right?
0: Beautiful metaphor,
1: yeah. That's the metaphor I explain in the book, and I I explain how your cultures are your fabric, your languages are your threads, and each place that you live in are all the different layers of your mola. And um, and then I ask the family, so what are you building? What does your design look like? You know, here's mine. And so so that this, these are kind of the exercises that we do in the book together.
0: Beautiful. I think that's a good place to come to an end of this conversation. It's been amazing talking to you and I'm sure we could go on for another three hours. (laughs) I'm not sure people would care to listen to us for another three hours or more. Um, I would like to ask you one last question. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about? Is there anything that you didn't get to talk about that? um, Anything that you would like to send out into the world now that you have the chance?
1: No, I think, I think we had quite a, quite a good, quite a frank discussion. Um, I think language, um, it really strikes to your core, as we were mentioning. And I think it's very important that families around the world receive the kind of help that they need or have resources to, to, you know, on this topic to check or to Mm -hmm. consult. So I think this is a huge step forward. um, Because I remember when I was starting off, I felt like, oh, there were, where were the resources I was really struggling to know. Um, And I feel like in the past 20, 25 years, it's, you know, there's Tons of work has been done. Uh, there's so many podcasts. There's so many, there's so much good information out there. So I do encourage families to go and, and listen to your podcast, listen to others. Um, I feel like it really does make a big difference to know you're not alone. Uh, know, you know, if your kids are rebelling, that's normal. That's perfectly normal. Um, and um, I think the only thing I would say is that with our, you know, uh, mix of East and West, I think it's very interesting to look at languages from a socio-economic uh, viewpoint and I mentioned a few things like hierarchy, like social value, these are all very important things and sometimes people uh, may get discouraged thinking oh my language isn't important, oh I can't find written books in my language or you know people face all sorts of challenges. But it's, it's very important that you do have this conversation with yourself about what's important to you and what can you do about it. It's really it's just down to that. And don't beat yourself up. Um, in my book, I also say multilingual parenting. is It's it's not a competitive sport. You know, it's not about who does it better. It's simply about honoring who you are and your story, your MOLA. Right. So let, let's not, you know, lose track of, of, of that and keep that as the focus. Um, and I think that will be the best thing you can do. As I mentioned, languages are the gift you keep for life. So <laughs> I think that's the best gift we could give ourselves.
0: I love that. That's a great conclusion to this amazing conversation. I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, and I hope <laughs> so did our listeners. And thank you so much, Miriam, for your time.
1: Thank you, Bettina. And thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure.